All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Course Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. What up, y'all? This is Laia, and this week's QLS Classic is one of my favorite episodes of all time. The one and only Bobby McFerrin stops by to talk about his unique journey in music. And not only that, we have his daughter, Madison, who is crazy talented as well. This episode is from September 26, 2018. Enjoy! All right, give me baseline, Fonte. <laughs> Why are you thinking the Jungle Brothers cool at the end of the record? <laughs> My name is Questlove. Yeah. yeah. This fact I flaunt. Yeah. I can remix my own theme. Yeah. Anytime I want. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. My name is Fonte. Yeah. Some say I'm loco. Yeah. Had to sing it like Bobby. Yeah. And do it acapulco. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. My name is Sugar. Yeah. I always worry. Yeah. I'm never happy. Yeah. yeah. Just give up on me already. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. Oh, shit. Yeah. yeah. On Quest Love Supreme. Yeah. yeah. Chilling with the man. Yeah. yeah. They made the best Cosby theme. Roll call. Yeah. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. Suprema, 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 Roll Call. It's La Ian. Yeah. And Bobby McFerrin. Yeah. Now, you know your versions of Night in the Tunisia and Blackbird? Yeah, that's all I'm hearing. I don't care if it is. Roll Call. Suprema, 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 Roll Call. 
Suprema, Suprema Roll Call. My name is Maddie. Yeah. yeah. I'm here with Dad. Yeah. This is my first time. Yeah. And I am happy. Roll Call. <laughs> Suprema, Suprema, Suprema Roll Call. Suprema, 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 Suprema Roll Call. My name is Bobby. Yeah. Bob Duke Shabby. Yeah. It's your Uba Uba Roll Call. Suprema, Suprema, Suprema Roll Call. Suprema, Suprema, Roll Call. Suprema, Suprema, Roll Call. On one. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Don't watch me. For a bunch of music nerds, we are bad. I was like, I'm not a singer. Take six just rolled over in their grave. I was like, wait, they alive. My bad. They're still alive. That's right. My bad. Jesus. I was was like, okay, where is this going? Like, we are the the, the upper echelon of music knowledge, yet we couldn't (laughs) just spontaneously break out in (laughs) six-part harmony. We don't do shows every week like you. (laughs) (laughs) You know. Every day. Okay. All right. How often do you do these these Uh, A lot. You 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 are what he will. We're past our hundredth yeah, episode we're, now. We're right? over oh, hundred really? episodes in now. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, first, I was very bad at this, but now I'm just <laughs> mediocre. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Quest Love Supreme on Pandora. Uh, as you, <laughs> I got my own soundtrack. I don't even need my own effects. That is. Um, our guest today is probably one of the most purest artists in the sense of the word pure. Uh, he is a living, breathing instrument, uh, very much uh, as jazz, as he is hip-hop, as he is soul, as he is classical. Uh, he is a 10-time Grammy winner, uh, absolutely bar none, probably one of the most unique chameleons, yes. vocal chameleons uh, in music, having collaborated uh, with such luminaries as Chikoria, Herbie Hancock, uh, Pharaoh Sanders, uh, vocalists like Al Jarreau, George Benson, John Hendricks, Esperanza Spalding, uh, Manhattan Transfer, his own voiceistra, and his mind-blowing, I really want to talk about the uh, the Vocabularies Project and recording 1,200 vocal tracks. Is, wow. Uh, I would say that he's probably the artist in which leaving his comfort zone is his actual comfort zone. Uh, <laughs> he's made... Children's, he's won Grammys for children's records with Jack Nicholson, done projects with Robin Williams, uh, simultaneously with, in Minnesota with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, uh, uh, over in Barcelona, the Aurelio, I can't pronounce it, the Orleo Catalia. That's a good, I'm, good, I'm going good, off good effort. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was one point where I was just doing like a bunch of uh, 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 abbreviations, but uh even his even his own freaking offspring are killing it. Yes. Uh, of course, yes. we love uh, Taylor, who's uh, yep. noted beatbox god, and he's uh, right now in the in the contemporary jazz world making stuff with Napalm from Hiatus Coyote and Robert Glasper. Uh, of course, Javon, uh, actor in his own right, is currently the title role in a, in a very unknown off Broadway production of his 
play called Hamilton. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know yeah. I've never yeah, seen it. it. My pockets are thin. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah. Okay, anyway. Uh, and last but not least, our, our second guest today, uh, Madison Miss Grant. Madison was for breakfast. I'm sorry. Last but not least, damn, this introduction is like seven minutes. Whole family. The extended disco version. Our good friend Madison. Yes, our good friend Madison McFerrin. She's blazing trails in her own right, sort of with her brand of what I call sensual soul appella. Oh, that's yeah. a good one. I've been saying acapella soul. soul. Yes. So that's good. I like Central that. Central uh, with both her albums, the, the Foundation Projects, Volume 1 and Volume 2. And yeah, I want to talk about that insane video, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the McFerrins to Questlove Supreme. Yes. <laughs> Bobby Madison. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> one day I'm going to have like a very succinct and just to the point intro that only takes 30 seconds. 30 seconds, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Bob McFerrin on the show. So, how, how, how are you today, uh, sir? I'm well, thank you. And yourself? I'm fine. I'm very See, happy even to be here. Your speaking voice has calmed us down. Right. <laughs> we might as well do it on NPR levels. So, <laughs> you're, you're fine today. You're good. Yes, yes, I am. Thank you. Thank you. And Madison, how are, how are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you. I haven't seen you in the month of Sundays, so yeah, it's, it's been, good to see you. It's been a long time. It's good to see you. Since yeah. I've left Philadelphia. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you got you guys, I know that you're, you have roots in Philadelphia, Minnesota, and the Bay Area, That's but correct. like, what do you consider home? Or is it just where you Ooh. lay your dreadlocks? That's your home. <laughs> Where I dread. <laughs> well, probably for me, the answer would be California. Okay. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles. My parents moved to L.A. when I was eight. So I went through all my teenage years. I went to college in Sacramento. I went to Sacramento State. Right, I think now it's called California State University in Sacramento, mm-hmm. where I was a composition student. Then all my kids were born in San Francisco. So I think that that pretty much covers it. And our family, like the people who we really, our community, they're still in the Bay for they're the still most in part. The Bay Area. So. Still fighting, still still there? Yeah. yeah. They haven't been <laughs> our, chased out yet? Yeah. Okay. My mom is in San Francisco right now. So. Oh, okay. Know, just okay. goes to show you. When dad's away, she goes back there. Goes back home <laughs> to visit. So you, you were born, and where were you originally? Uh, not originally. Like there's a remix. Like there's a remix. <laughs> yeah. Are you talking where, to me? Yes, I am. Where were you born? I was born here in Manhattan. You're a New Yorker? Yes. Okay. Okay. So what, what did your parents do for a living? They were both singers. Uh, my father was, uh, was the first African-American to sign a contract with the Metropolitan Opera in 1955. Uh, he was the voice of Sidney Poitier, in the in the uh, movie version of Porgy and Be- Por- Porgy and Bess, he was yes in nineteen. So that was all this time. I thought that was you thought that was Sydney. <laughs> yeah, no, I did. I did. No way. <laughs> no, that was my my father. Wow, that explains a lot. So what what were your your uh, your formative years, at least before the age of ten, as far as exposure to music and. Well, my parents loved jazz, and so in addition to Beethoven and Bach and Mozart, 
you know, I was exposed to Count Basie, to Joe Williams, to uh, Dinah Washington, mm-hmm. and uh, Etta Jones, uh, Thelonious Monk, uh, you know, lots of different, different jazz artists. Weren't you also in that, like, Juilliard Prodigy I program? I went to Juilliard when I was six. Wow. By the way, <laughs> wow. by the way, ladies and gentlemen, that is so casual. Wait, can we, can we just, like, mock roll the theme right now? That's the end of our show. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the, the greatest humble brag of all time. Wow. Six really? Six years old, wow. Yeah, they had a program for aspiring musicians at that that age. I was admitted and was under the tutelage of a Miss Bamberger. And uh, we did some compositions. In fact, there's a composition that I wrote when I was six that Maddie and I even play together sometimes on the piano called The Spanish Fiesta. But you wrote it on the fly. I wrote it on the fly, yeah. I wrote it the night before the class the next day. And it just it just stuck with you. It just kind of stayed out there. It's very good as I like thinking about a six year old making this song. I couldn't make this song at 26. (laughs) It blows my mind still. So initially, like, were you studying piano or any other? Piano was my main instrument all through college. I played flute in the school orchestra. That was my second instrument. I was a composition major. I, at the time, thought that I wanted to write for for television and movies and do arrangements for various groups. And Dave Grusin was my hero at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I one one day made a phone call to his home. I I got his number from the musicians' union's directory, <laughs> wow. and I called him. And he called he called he returned my call about three days later, and invited me to his scoring session. He was filming. He was doing a score for a film called Tell Him Willie Boy Is Here with Robert Redford, and uh, he told me to bring down my compositions, and so I became a student of his in composition for a while, and then later on in life, we became friends. We worked together and and became friends. Would that ever work in hip-hop now, Fonte? Like, if someone, like, say... Charles Hamilton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. I do another example. Yeah, no, we use rapper X. Okay. <laughs> Just calls your, you know. Calls your crib out of the blue. Yeah, yeah 2001. Yeah. That kind of happened to me in 2011 with really? a rapper that just sent me a text and I was like, is this really, are you, are you, are you kidding me? And it was really him. Really? Yeah. And you didn't really respond. I quit. No, I did respond. I did respond after I vetted and see if it was really him. I was like, "Is this really homie?" And he was like, "Yeah." So you gotta say who? It was Drake. But it was really? <laughs> yeah, like, Wait, that's how Drake? I thought Drake just mentioned it like in interviews. I didn't realize that. No, nah, like he, I just got like a random text from him out the blue one day, and like it was back in like 2011, and I hit ninth. I was like, "Yo, is this really him?" He was like, "Nah, it's him, dude." He, he, I said, "Okay." Oh damn. So. Oh wow! Okay. I'm no Dave Grusin. It works no. for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I always catch them like you know when before they're bubbling over. Like Wale swears that I was dis- no John Legend swears that also. 
What? When he was John Stevens, he was kind of. We didn't. I didn't. He never made himself known. That's why we gotta get him on the show because I'm tired of him saying that I was just sunning him all that time. I, Ooh, it's Philly. It's like the bouquet. That was James like... Poyser, not me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, no, no <laughs> throw him oh, under the geez. bus. Um, so yeah, but at six, were you you knew what what path you wanted to take in life, or was it just like your parents just? I I didn't really know what I wanted to do really until I was a senior in high school. And up until that time, I I thought of myself in different ways. I wasn't, I can't recall off the top of my head what I was thinking at that time. I think I was just into being a, a teenage kid who just loved to go to parties and dance and stuff like that and hang out. But uh, I was called in to the senior counselor's office one day and he asked me a question. He said, you know, he asked, uh, so what do you want to do with yourself? Who, who do you think you are? And and my answer was, well, I guess I'm a musician. <laughs> Un- <laughs> Wait, what? Understatement of life. And it wasn't until that moment that I actually have the thought solidified in my mind that that's really the path I wanted to take because I didn't really know anything else. By this time, though, since your parents were professionals, did they notice that you were special in that way? Did they see it? My parents knew I was a musician before I was two. Wow. How did they say they noticed? They just, they just knew it. You're going to just be a parents. musician. You're going to be a musician. <laughs> but they could tell. See, I was trying to, before we got to this interview, I was trying to, I guess I was analyzing or overanalyzing the path that brought you here and I thought well either because the thing is your 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 spontaneous fearless nature it it's so daredevil the way that you approach stuff that it's almost like you're a permanent 13 year old so either <laughs> I thought so either I thought well similar to Michael Jackson like you're you're making up for I thought, okay, well, he, he had a rigid, strict childhood in the beginning, and then once he became of college age and adult, then it's like, ah, I'm going to, you know, that, that scene where, in Home Alone where, what's his name, just goes crazy in the house, uh, Macaulay Culkin. Like, I thought it was that. Or maybe, you know, since the age of two, you were the the, the class clown type, like always disruptive noises and those things. Like, I I didn't expect this answer that you developed into who you are 10, 15 years later in life. Like, well, because to develop the gift that you have, I feel like that is beyond the 10,000 hour genius theory. I feel like that takes 40,000 hours of, <laughs> because it's fearlessness and, you know, you can sing well, what's, arpeggios. What's interesting is that for the longest time, you know, even though I was studying piano and playing piano, I always had a nagging suspicion that I wasn't a pianist. You know, there was something that I wasn't satisfied with just playing piano. Piano didn't do enough for me. And as I was asking myself this this question about, you know, who am I really? Am I a pianist? Even though I, in my inner self, knew that the answer was in the negative, that I was not a pianist, I discovered Keith Jarrett and his solo concerts. Mm-hmm. 
So I thought to myself, if if he can be on stage alone without knowing, having the slightest idea what he's going to play when he sits down, why can't I do something like that? So I decided to explore myself as a vocalist and dedicated six years to learning, teaching myself my technique. And for about six years, I, I, I practiced about two hours a day before I did my first solo concert. And this started at 27, though. I started at 27. That is unheard of. <laughs> right. That is unheard of. So what were you doing before then? Like, what were you doing for a living? And I was doing casual gigs, you know, playing weddings and going on the road and playing lounges with lounge bands and playing jazz you know, stuff or what, you know, what's covering that? the pop stuff on the radio. On the piano. Give me an example. Yeah, what would you, the, what would you, what was like your repertoire in, let's say, whatever band you were in 1979? Like, Well, by 79, I was doing solo concerts. Oh, okay. So this period is 75, 74? The spirit? No, no, no. I mean, just like your pre, uh, pre-solo concerts. Your pre-solo concerts. Yeah. I pre-solo concerts. I was playing in bands and playing piano. And what songs were like hot at the time that you had oh, to have? You know, Marvin Gaye. Okay. And others. I mean, just other stuff. We, yeah, I guess. Stevie Wonder. Here's my prompter here. <laughs> filling, I've filling heard a lot in, of stories. I want to make sure that they like. Filling in the Thank gap. you, Madison. Thank you. That is amazing. Okay. So I have a question real quick before yeah. we move, move on from Keith Jarrett. Um, so he does that thing where he's sort of singing and grunting right, while, he while he's playing. So was that part of the, the influence on, on what you're talking had about? had no, no influence on me at all, his grunting and <laughs> you know, squealing. So it was just it his bravery up on stage or his improv? The fact imp- that improvising. he could walk and sit, I thought it was a very brave act, action on his part, to simply sit at the piano, greet the instrument, and engage in this musical dance that he had with, you know, with, with, the, with that instrument, with that grand instrument. And I, I wanted to do that as a vocalist. Now, it took me some time to get enough courage to do it and enough stamina to, to be on stage alone for 90 minutes without any idea of what I was going to play. That's very, very difficult to do. Yeah. It's funny, though, I, would, I made a rule for myself early on that my first two pieces would be completely improv, complete improvisation. The first piece was easier than the second. The second one was really difficult to do. For some reason, I had the hardest time pushing through that wall of, of uh, a- anything, wall of just something that stopped me from, from going on. Mm-hmm. You know, the first piece is just so easy to sit down and don't watch And sometimes my first improvs would be 10 minutes, sometimes they'd be 15 or 20 minutes. Then to stop and re-enter into that improvisational space was for some reason a lot harder for me to do this, you know, the, the second piece mm-hmm. was very, very difficult. So that, that became part of my, my rule, do the riskiest thing first. Really? Yeah. I well, that one show that you and I did together at Town Hall. Yes. I've never in my adult life lost more sleep 
or had more anxiety <laughs> about any performance. And I mean, I've been in situations that like where I've had to give speeches and right. things I didn't want to do publicly. Um, How do you even prepare for a Bobby McFerrin? Well, that's the thing. Oh, I, I, I kind of yeah. called and hinted like, okay, so to draw a map, what should I do? And it's just nothing. We'll we'll just we'll figure it out on stage. What? And I'm like, wait. So then it was to the point where I was like going to Jill Newman, like, hey, how much are tickets? Okay, so how much people? <laughs> how much entertainment does a person expect for? Blah blah blah. blah, blah, blah. Fifty dollars, right? Right. And I my fifty dollar drum set. Because usually when I like when I plan my shows or whatever, I start with what are the last three songs? Because in my mind, I'm like. A person in the audience remembers the first 10 minutes, how you come on stage, mm -hmm. and even if you have an absolute shit show, if the last Close, three strong. songs yeah. are straight, then Absolutely. They, that Men in Black flashes them and they forget. And for I was just like, well, wait, I only have four things going for me. And I was like, all right, I would have an electronic drum set, a real drum set, and my turntables. And then even then, I had like five things going for me. <laughs> like, but once, but when we, you once, down, we, got, once we got into the groove, yeah. though, it was over in it was over in and this seconds. Is, and this is just you on drums and, and him on drums. and him. That's it. Yeah. Wow. Never rehearsed. Never spoke. Like it was just a musical conversation. And then and by the end, you guys switched, and he got on drums, and you started doing some. Like, yeah. Wow. Wow. Where, is that, where, where is that video? Nah, let's talk about yeah, that. Quest Love Supreme. No, no. There's a photo of it somewhere. Anyway, sir, I just want to say. So by uh, when I, I I actually discovered you on your second album, The Voice, right? Which you know most McFarrenites are like, that's their album. Assuming that you perfected or at least found uh, uh, a formula, if you will, on the, the voice project, previously, like, what notes did you keep? Because I, I, assuming that from your very first time that you did a solo show until that point in 84 where at least sounded like you were comfortable on that album – what techniques have you learned besides the first and the second song as far as like breath control and harmony and audience participation? Well, I was immersed in, well, let me back up. I used to go to my father's recitals. He used to do classical recitals and he always ended his shows with spirit, uh, Negro spirituals. And, he had a way on stage where he invited the audience in. It was really genuine and and comforting and caring and and all all these positive words that I can't think of right now. But I loved watching him on stage. He was he was very easygoing and I wanted I felt that the best thing for me to 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 be on stage was to be as relaxed as possible. And that's a big key to the success of my concerts. You have to relax your audience. They have to feel very comfortable with you. And I allowed them to be participants with me. So it wasn't only myself singing, but it was the audience engaged in singing along with me. My technique was more than myself. It was me and the audience. You know, what I couldn't do, the audience could do, or they could hear. Mm -hmm. So 
they would fill in the blanks. So my solo technique is more about us than me, if you know what I mean. Do you have a, a formula as far as the the delivery of said song? Because even in doing the the roll call theme, I was panicking. Like, should I be the drums? Should I be the bass? Should I be the <laughs> harmony? Should I? So is there some sort of polarizing? Because when I hear you sing a song, I can hear the, the blanks filled in, even the parts that I don't hear. I, see, right. I hear where you're going. So is it is it a formula you've established where it's like, okay, I'll do a little vocal here and then establish the bass? And- no, everything is a, a surprise. Every note is a surprise. I, I don't have any rules. I don't have any plans. I enter the stage empty and I exit full. Is that 100% of the time? That's 100% of the time. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo. 
two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus. I'm going to ask you a question that I ask most stand-up comedians. Uh, because you're up there alone for your solo shows, uh, how do you deal with the disruptive or heckler kind I of incorporated. <laughs> so that's how you extinguish the fire. That's how I deal with it. I just, I just take whatever the heckler is heckling me about and musicalize it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one time a guy came in late and he was sitting in a balcony and when he sat down, the, the chair squeaked. So I squeaked, and he squeaked, and I squeaked some more. <laughs> so he started, he started playing his seat, the squeak. So I did a, a duet with the squeak in his seat. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. You know? So it's almost like you welcome it because I, I don't know if you're thinking of like a show like, oh, Time Eater. Oh, good. I have something to eat up this particular 10 minutes or whatever, but... So you, do you welcome those types of distractions or well, is it? I, I guess it does depend, but I, I can honestly say that at least 90% of the time I use whatever is given to me. I just take it and incorporate it in whatever, whatever the improvisation is, whatever the landscape is. I take it and I use it. So I, I don't. I don't fear anything on stage, really. In fact, I'm scared sitting in this chair just thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> right. like, yeah, just like I, everything I do, I always have to map it out before I do it. So, kudos to you. Well, I used to be that way as a composition student. I, you know, you're writing everything down exactly the way that you want it, and even solos. I would even write the solos out because I wanted to the soloist to go in a certain direction. But then Miles Davis was playing at a club in Los Angeles called Shelley's Manhole. Shelley Man. Shelley Man, yeah, yeah. The drummer. Mm -hmm. And the band included Keith Jarrett, uh, Michael Henderson, who was, I think, borrowed from James Brown or Sly and the Family Stone or, or something. Oh, he was in the Motown bass. School. He was in Motown School. Yeah, yeah. Stevie's a uh, bass player at the time. Right, well, that, you're right. Mm -hmm. Jack DeJanet on drums, Gary Bart on soprano sax. Miles mm -hmm. uh, was sporting some black leather pants and a black shirt, playing a, drag, a black trumpet hooked up to a wah-wah pedal. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I left the club that night, I literally was walking on air. I, my feet didn't touch the ground for at least two weeks because <laughs> I understood what improvisation was from that moment on, I understood it. You know, it's complete musical freedom. You should so, tell that story, though, because that's a pretty good story of going to that show. I, when, I, when I arrived to, to the show, 
there was a line down the block and around the corner. The place was already packed with people. So the people that were standing in line, it was just hopeless that you were going to get in. So I'm standing there with my date. A woman walks out of the club, and for some reason she stopped at me and said, Do you, would you like two tickets? And I said, well, yes, I would. <laughs> <laughs> so I had my two tickets, walked into the club, and the last two seats were right next to the bandstand. I mean, just abutted the, the bandstand. So I got a full view of the entire band, last two seats. So I, that was the night that I was introduced to Keith Jarrett, and the band just blew me away. So was this a Bitches Brew tour or something like that? This or was around? Live Evil. Okay. Okay, so right before On the Corner. Right. Is that in Tume time? Yeah. Okay. He should have been there. Was James and Tume there, his percussionist? Do you know? I don't recall percussionist. Okay. Yeah, James, he came in 72, slightly late. Yeah, this was in February of 71. Yeah, right beforehand. Um, so with, well, that's good to see that you were open to that because then I know many a jazz snob who, you know, depending on who who you speak to, like uh former writer for the uh, Village Voice. Your boy, Stanley Crouch. Stanley Crouch, yeah. yeah. Crouch would have been like, yeah, whatever, you know. But it's it's almost, it's it's good to hear your your perspective of it as 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 a younger uh well i mean i know that you were immersed in jazz already having grown up in it but you know usually people have different points of view of 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 miles's uh early period, period. Yeah. right yeah. right so who who were your just as far as your musical idols at the time in the early 70s, as you're finding yourself, like who were your absolute heroes? Picasso. <laughs> Whoa, okay. Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Uh, I've drawn, I'm drawing a blank now. Well, Keith Herbie Jarrett. <laughs> Herbie? Okay, Herbie? Well, Herbie for sure. Stevie. Wow, that's amazing. So, okay, I'm, I want to skip slightly ahead to simple pleasures, yes, without mentioning the the D word. Yes, <laughs> yes. But what Drive I want, my car. But what I want to, <laughs> no. what I want to know is, um, not that were you shocked at this success, but I'm certain that with the audience that discovered you. And I won't lie. Like, I won't say like, oh, yes, I knew you were a Bob McFerrin fan the whole time. When I first saw you on the Grammys, I think uh, you're doing Round About Midnight with Herbie Hancock. Right. My first response was, yo, that's the that's the Levi's 501 <laughs> blues guy. Oh, he sings? So the way that audiences have discovered you, were you not slightly dismayed, but I know that it had to have been a weird change after Simple Pleasures comes out with with the with the, the massive success of Don't Worry Be Happy. Whereas now maybe non jazz fans or non 
sophisticated yeah. music. Uh, he was on VH1. The video was on VH1. Yeah, but I'm just saying that. <laughs> is it? Is it? Was it somewhat dismaying for you to have this new audience that really doesn't understand the the, the art of jazz and what it is that you were about, and you just well, want the "Don't worry, be happy" guy. I never. I never really thought of myself as a jazz musician because I did so many different kinds of pieces during an evening. I mean, I might follow up a James Brown piece, you know, seeing the Ave Maria mm -hmm. by Bach, and follow it up with a Beatles tune, and then follow that up with something just completely wild and crazy and out of hand and chaotic and rambunctious and and all. So I never thought, I, I never pr promoted myself as a jazz singer. Though I did sing jazz pieces, you know, of course. What was the process like, um, just kind of going back a little bit, to signing your record deal? Like, how were you able, you know, what was the market like for what you were doing at that time? Because it was, it was really unique. So how did well, you Well, after sell my it? first album, which was, you know, self-titled self Bobby McFerrin, after that one, they wanted to make me into the the new Al Jarreau. Ah. So they, yeah, I was going to say, your first album is rather traditional for what was... Right. So they they hired uh, a top Hollywood arranger by the name of Johnny Mandel, who, who was a fabulous musician. Any relation, Steve? No, but um, he wrote the MASH theme, I think, also, did that Johnny Mandel. Johnny Mandel. Oh, yeah, really? Right oh, okay. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, I was down in Los Angeles working in his studio for about two weeks when at the end of the session I said to him, you know, this doesn't feel right. I don't feel good about the direction that that they're pushing me towards. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I called off that particular project and was immediately summoned into the president's office. <laughs> mm -hmm. By the name of Bruce Lundvall, he had what was the name of the what was the name of the label? Musician was Electro Musician. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. I see the logo. And he says, "Well, Bobby, what's what's going on? Why didn't you want to do the project?" And I said, "It's because I I have in my heart to do solo pieces, solo concerts." And he asked me what that was. And I tried to explain to him. I said, well, it would just be me recording shows and improvising. And as he says, this is really important to you, is it? And I said, yes. God wants me to do it. Really? Who yeah, that's that? what I said. And that's exactly what Bruce says. Well, we can't argue with God. <laughs> <laughs> so he allowed me to, to do my second album, The Voice. Wow. The way that you wanted to do it. Well, the way I mean, that you I did, wanted to do you it. Did, uh, there were a few, a few acapella esque uh, songs on the first record, right? So like was that all done? Feats, in... All feats can dance. And... Yeah. So I interrupted you. you. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was just figuring if maybe that was added after the fact that you had the talk and said, "This is what I'm more about," as opposed to. Right. That's pretty much okay. right. I wanted to introduce my audience to the the self that I knew that I was. I think Bruce uh, later was president of Blue Note. 
at the, right. at the time when we were doing the, the Elvis Costello project. That's that's correct. Bruce also, I think, famously signed uh, Bill Withers to Columbia after Clarence Avant uh, dissolved Success, success uh, Records. So that's how I know uh, Bruce. So for the... How did the commercial world discover you? With the, the Levi's stuff and the Ocean Spray and all I, the other... I don't really know. You, and the Cosby theme, you know, all those those pieces, those... those. Well, by the time Cosby came along, you were a household name. But I mean, just in the beginning, I heard your voice on commercials and that sort of thing. Like like Ocean Spray. Yeah. Was it... Was it a mark was there marketing geniuses behind this like this is how we're going to promote you or was it just how do people discover i don't know you? how to answer that i, I really probably just linda it's probably, <laughs> yeah linda is probably the answer to that question oh, okay. my manager okay um so with uh your is is the project with wait wait before i for, say anything i got to figure out how Freddie Freeloader was recorded with Al Jarreau, John Hendricks, and George Benson. Yeah. Who wrote the lyrics? John Hendricks. How long did it take you to study? Because at the time when I heard it, someone explained to me that you guys literally transposed every solo on the original Miles Davis piece, applied words to it. Right. And once I, at first I didn't believe it, and then I had to, literally get both copies and go and i was mind blown at the commitment that it took could you discuss the recording process of recording like was it done in parts or it was done each singer recorded their part individually you know in in their own studio okay and uh i can't remember if i learned the original solo by tommy flanagan or if I if I'd studied the words first, I don't remember. Okay. But it it took me it took me about four or five days, I think, to get it down. And what's really interesting is that he left out a verse. You know, he wrote he wrote all these words, and mm-hmm. and I said, well, John, you forgot this verse. And he sat down in the studio and wrote the lyrics out then at, at that moment. I'm not sure. On the they, spot? On the spot. Because he could, he could hear words in melody. You know, he, he had this gift of understanding what the melodies were saying. So he wrote it out and we recorded it. And, and it, was a, it was a delightful, it had a delight, delightful outcome. It was a good experience. Did you commit that entire solo to memory, or was it like, okay, I'll do eight bars here and then listen to the original and figure out like no, punchings? And I believe my memory serves me well. That I pretty much had it nearly perfectly memorized, but I think I even, but I think I used the, the lyrics on a music stand just just in case I should in re, in recording the piece, you know, have a misstep in my memory and forget certain words but but uh, i think it came off pretty well yeah that 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 is probably bar none my favorite performance of you but i'll say that maybe like it's 
maybe my top ten songs of all time because beyond beyond the just beyond the magnitude of hearing you know four very unique vocalists again Al Jarreau, George Benson, John Hendricks, and Bob McFerrin attempt this. John John Hendricks is like the the father of what they call vocalists. Right. Like they'll they'll often uh or you remember we were laughing at Eddie Jefferson doing bitches brew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but was... even 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 Eddie Jefferson fault. Like I mean Eddie Jefferson is more like I would say he's closer to like Rufus Thomas. Oh, okay. if if Rufus Thomas were a jazz singer right, 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 or whatever right. or ODB, I don't know. <laughs> but uh yeah, John Hendricks of formerly of uh, Lambert Hendricks and Ross. I mean, they were like the original Manhattan transfer slash wow. Booker T. Singers, oh wow! Yeah. So is that why? So on because I'm look I'm looking up Freddie Free- Freeloader. Is yeah. that is that why only John Hendricks is listed on the song? Well, it's on his album. Okay. Yeah, it's on his album. Okay. So it's sort of like you know getting the the, the most unique vocals, but even George Benson's uh, approach, I, you know. That's uh, and I tell him uh, that's my favorite. Is this post simple pleasures or just pre simple pleasures? Oh, I you guys that. did that in ninety, I think. I'd like to think it was nineteen ninety. I'm not sure. Well, I think we were still living in San Francisco. If it was ninety, I wasn't alive. So. <laughs> <laughs> I had to speak to that before <laughs> my time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the year before me. Yeah, yeah, eighty nine, ninety. It was, that's it was, right. Yeah, yeah around, around that time around there. Yeah. I, I ask because I was just wondering if we were in the still in the simple pleasures bag because you said that you don't consider yourself a jazz vocalist, but I wonder if you consider yourself like a conduit to all music because a lot sometimes people I don't know if you're aware of this, but sometimes people learn of other musical genres and songs through you. Well, I would call myself a folk musician. Okay, okay, mm. okay. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. You know, music, music of the folk. You know, I tr- I try to whenever I go to different countries if I have an opportunity to hear some of the musical styles that come from that culture. I try and incorporate it in my improvs, you know, as as well as I can. I've gone to several music schools, you know, in different countries where they would have ensembles play for me and invite me to participate with them. So I would take what I could from that experience, you know, onto the stage with me and play with the sounds and the scales and, mm-hmm. and, and all. How many countries do you think you've done that in, like improvising with other cultures oh, like that? Lots. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any that have stumped you? Thanks, Madison. Stumped me. Like, what's been the hardest to incorporate? Language-wise, like too. Indian. Right? I was in Indian. Like that's that's quarter tone. That's a that's good a... question. I can't think of any off the top of my head. You can't. Man, stumpers meet. <laughs> One man dare to up. Excuse me. Yeah. Damn, you sound just like him. <laughs> Did you see uh, Red uh, Pepper? We, yes, that? we yeah. often fall into rabbit holes on this show. Wait, you you're the one that put the mm-hmm. link up, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got I gotta meet that dude, man. Yeah, the guy. I never that knew does. he was black. Yeah, it's a black it's a brother in London that does like all that stuff. That that's voice, all the videos. The the scary uh in a world where so and so Oh, I yeah, thought that was a white man with a mustache. No. <laughs> it no. was a guy. It uh, was. It he was. died. Right. He died. Okay. He passed. Okay. 
But he looks like he looks like Ving Rhames now. Like, oh, wow. wow. Good to know. But has a polite Cockney accent. Like yeah, that. Not, yeah. Cockney accent. Yeah. I think I said it right. That's right. Yeah. Don't have so. us out on these streets saying crazy shit, Cusslove. <laughs> <laughs> I'm straight. I'm straight, man. Good. So, okay. Now, I guess I will bring up the D word. Uh, at what point did you realize that this song was going beyond just having a hit single and that what song are we talking about uh dwbh yes dwbh (laughs) (laughs) we got we got a cornel that's what the chapter is gonna be you you know i i I showed uh I, i showed the shirt that he had on oh yeah yeah i gave it to solange you did yeah, they, they they laughed at it. Uh, he had a shirt that said, don't Be- worry, Beyonce. Saying, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> well, it, was, yeah. it was my shirt, but I made him wear it for a photo op. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, they got a kick out of it. Um, yeah, so, I mean, was there a point where you, because assuming that you took it out your repertoire, or if you ever, I don't know if you ever performed it live in concert or whatever, but. I haven't performed that song live in concert since November of 1988. Wow. wow. Why, why are you so specific with the... Di- <laughs> oh. The, because... Wasn't well, the electric... The tune, the tune came out September, the September before that, I believe. Mm-hmm. 30-year anniversary. Oh, man. It's the... Yes, it's the 30-year anniversary. Uh, I'm late. Sorry, math. It's <laughs> well, why specifically November? Like, what's the significance of? I just remember that when I started doing solo concerts, that I refused to do that that piece on stage because I wanted the audience to to know me for, as an improviser. Right. You know, so I didn't want to, uh, you know, be falling back on that tune all the time or or have them expect it. They they've they grew out of it over time, you know. They said, well, he's not going to do that. He's not going to do that song because he doesn't do it anymore. And I, I just don't do it. You still get asked. I still like get every asked. Show, still? Do you make mean faces when they ask, or you just say? No, I I don't make faces. I just say, no, I I probably won't do it. I, I occasionally might hint to the melody in the middle of an improv. Mm-hmm. You know, it might come up. Okay. But I don't intentionally do it. And... The only exceptions that I make are for kids. You know, for kids to say, would you sing that song? I might sing the chorus, you know, a chorus or something. I've probably heard you sing like one verse in my entire life. Wow. Probably. Okay, next show, I'm bringing like five kids. (laughs) 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 The the only time I've ever seen you do some of it in a show setting was one time when we were on tour and there was a kid who was severely disabled mm-hmm. who asked. And so then I think he did like a verse and a chorus. But we yeah. did it in like a samba style or something like that. <laughs> like it wasn't the same. What's that? That might be Don't Herbie Be Hancock. <laughs> <laughs> Did nobody ask you to circle around around the? Uh, I hate to bring it on a downturn, but on the death of uh, Robin Williams. Did anyone what? Asked you to bring it back around during that era, during the time of the death of Robin oh, Williams no. since the video. No, the weirdest request I ever had to do that tune was they they one year at the Academy Awards they wanted me to sing that song to the losers. 
And I said, wow. I said, <laughs> I said I, are you out of your mind? You want me to sing that show, sing that song on national television to the losers? You got to be ridiculous. That's, That's a bad totally idea. ridiculous. Speaking of which, um, you hold the, uh, the, the dubious honor of winning both record and song of the year. In a time in which I thought that Man in the Mirror was going to be Michael Jackson's redemption from losing the five awards of the previous year for the bad awards. And he didn't, I was, I was elated and and happy that you won. What was your, when, did you feel as though like you had a chance or was it just like, "Eh, whatever? I didn't really pay much, much attention to it. Yeah, you scattered your thank you uh, thing and <laughs> I was like, yeah, uh, wow. "Is that the year that?" <laughs> 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 I used to watch it all the time. Like, Amir, stop hitting your chest like that. <laughs> Is that the year that Michael sent you Beatles albums Could as be. like a congratulations yeah. or yeah, something like so. that? Oh, he's a good sport so. about it. I wouldn't have known about the Beatles if it wasn't for Bobby McFerrin, not for nothing. I would have took me a little a longer. Yeah. I will say that. Like your drive, my car was like, oh. And then I heard theirs. I was like, oh, they did it too. right all right i'll be honest yeah i'll say that 90 percent of the beatles catalog i discovered covers covers. yeah Yeah. everyone else before yeah Yeah. i was like oh blackbird they did it too yeah yeah Yeah. i didn't know blackbird was a beatles song for a very long time and what's weird is i still consider his version the 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 definitive version version. it's a very good version yeah, even when McCartney still does it now, and in my head, I can't imagine anyone not singing the. It's hard to go to. I've lost my voice. <laughs> Speaking of losing your voice, how do you handle sickness on the road? And I use what voice I've got. If I've got two octaves, I just use the two octaves. How many octave? What's your octave range? Four. Wow, that's. The average that's person is two. I'm at my health. Yeah. I was about to say, translate that for me. Um, yes, yeah, I was to break it down for you. I mean, your octave range is. I mean, that the average person, I'm sure me, Steve, me is yeah, a right. two octave range. Okay. I'm sure a singer, maybe yeah, Fonte can, three, maybe yeah, because yeah. he sings in his so maybe three. But when you're dealing with four and five octave range, that means you're special. So. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> Aren't we special? You are. Have you ever had uh, offers for Saturday morning cartoons and voiceovers? And yeah, stuff like that. Like, but a regular series, not just like a. No. Yeah. I no keep one telling might, him I you might. should do it though. I have been telling him that he needs to do it for the longest because this He's man. He's been doing it. Yes, but this man gives the best story time. Ever. Which leads like, to you, Madison McFerrin. Right. I had him read me stories until I was 12 years old. Straight up. <laughs> <laughs> like, no in shame. Bed, like. In bed. Because it was like, I, and I wouldn't even have my mom read me stories because she couldn't do all you the voices. Do it, good. Wow. it wasn't, it wasn't wow. the Poor same mom. thing. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. 
So you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, so by the time you're born via medicine music, all right, I'll, I'll... We start you at three. I, I think I was like one when Medicine Music came out. <laughs> right. I know that. But I'm just saying that how are you, when are you processing what you're in? Because you're the youngest of this brood. And I'm certain that your brothers are even via trickle down talent are just as spontaneous and, and creative as he was. Like, how are you processing the situation that you're in? Um. I didn't realize the magnitude of who he was or what he could do until I got to college. So Wait. Say what? I yeah. knew you before uh, then. Yeah. You met me my freshman year of college. First semester. So before then he was just, oh, that's dad? Yeah. Pretty wow. much. You didn't <laughs> listen to the records? You didn't realize well, that? Well, see, here's the thing. is like he, my friend pointed this out to me and I hadn't even realized until she did. I guess she got asked in a class once. They were talking about my dad. She mentioned that she knew him. And this is a friend of mine who I've known since we were three. And the t- professor was like, oh, what's it like knowing him? And she said, oh, he makes noise all the time. Uh-uh. <laughs> and I, did, I didn't even recognize that that was a thing until she pointed that out to me because he is, in fact, making noise all the time. And when your dad is just making noise all the time, that regular. Doesn't, yeah, it yeah. doesn't register as something that's like particularly unique or particularly different or strange. Like, I didn't realize, I didn't listen to his music as a musician until I got to college. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, wow, this is very difficult to do. But this is somebody who, like, I have been going to shows of his as long as I can remember. And so it's just, like, normal. (laughs) So I want to ask, how can you take someone serious that's, like, have your ass home by 10 that's also, like, 
like it's he was never really the enforcer of that that was my mom so i didn't oh, really have to cop he was asleep he goes to bed at like nine o'clock he was kind of the yeah he was in terms of good cop bad cop dynamic he's the good cop Okay. Slash okay. the cop who's on the road all the time, so mom has to be <laughs> bad cop and good. Cop. Like in my mind, you're you're, I, and I said it even the day where I first met you and your brothers. Like you guys are like the Animaniacs to yeah, me. That's pretty pretty accurate. And he's Doctor uh, uh, Robotnik. Uh, yeah. Oh, the one you never see. The one that yeah, yeah, lives yeah, in, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the tower with them. So yeah. So to you, did you know that you wanted to? sing as well or just I decided I wanted to be a singer when I was five um and I don't know if that was it definitely wasn't because like my parents were like oh you're gonna be a singer I think it was like I saw my dad was a singer and he enjoyed doing it I liked going to shows I liked singing with him and I was like oh if dad can do it I can do it and then I kind of just didn't question that thought which I'm curious about as an adult, like if that was really, I mean, I Youth. still love doing it, but it was very much like, oh, I'm going to be a singer. And then I just didn't question that <laughs> decision. Your fear in, it, it inclines as you get older. Your fear right, just, exactly. Yeah. exactly. How are you all making decisions at age five and six? I don't, <laughs> I don't even remember deciding anything at that age. Well, before like, that, I wanted to be a tightrope walker. Okay, so. there you go. Okay, that's yeah. nice. a little yeah, more. Yeah, even that's his influence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How does it feel, Bobby? It's funny because I just saw Madison's show for the first time even though i've known her for a few years now i'm like but i just saw her for the first time this year and it is so derivative of you but also just like her own fresh take what is that yeah Yeah, like what does that feel like watching your kids do that i'm glad that that they have taken what i've done and expanded on it you know and, and have developed it to to something that that i'm i feel i feel like i'm a part of it you know what Whatever they do, I feel like I'm a part of it because of the influence I guess I've had on them in the musical field. Slash literal DNA, but you know. <laughs> Slash literal DNA. I got, I got, I got. <laughs> yeah. Right. But it's also, too, your father and your mom, it's all trickled down. And so it must be sometimes you have a conscious moment of like, oh yeah, my God. My this- parents were in a Broadway. I can't remember if it was a Broadway show in 1949 called Lost in the Stars. Mm-hmm. Do you know this this piece? No. Yeah, Lost in the Stars. I've got an old program that someone found with the, the cast of characters, and at the bottom of the list is Robert McFerrin, villager. So he had a, a small role. And my mother was in the chorus, and so uh, they had a chance to sing together. I remember early in my childhood they were away a lot, which I didn't, I didn't like. I was very lonely for them as a kid. But uh, we eventually ended up in Los Angeles. Do you have any other siblings, or is it just you? I have a sister. Okay. Okay. Who's also a singer. Really? Yeah. Still currently. In and out of jobs, you know, the life of a of a musician it can be really tough, especially in. Musical mecca like Los Angeles. Okay. How do you get other people out of their comfort zone? Because uh, my introduction to Yo-Yo Ma was through you, but then seeing him in his regular environment and in such a, a strict 
disciplined atmosphere as classical music. I mean, you're really pulling him towards the the jazz world almost. Right. You know, doing improvising and soloing. So, one, how do you do? You plan all your collaborations that way? Like, let's just throw some spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks. And well, with Yo Yo, we we just brought it. We didn't we didn't know what the album was going to sound like. We just got together and had a stack of music. Yeah, I remember we must have had hundreds of pieces, and we just went through them and said, "Well, let's try this, try that." And I had also written five pieces, I think, for the album. Mm-hmm. And um, so we we just kind of went through a lot of material, and we worked we worked on my stuff. I think it took about a week to to record all this material, and uh, I. I sensed from playing with him that he could improvise if he wanted to, just because of the spirit of his behind his playing. He had a very strong spirit, and I could tell I could tell that he would make a great impro- improviser. And I kept telling him so. I said, "You can, you can do this. You can." So what I did to to aid him was give him some some points for him to play to. Mm-hmm. You know, and then once he played to that point, then I would direct him to another point and have him play to that point. And I knew he could handle it, even though he probably doesn't improvise much anymore. I really don't know. He has a group called the Silk Road Project. Okay. And it's music gathered from various cultures that he's brought together as an ensemble. And I'm not sure exactly how he works within that ensemble but I hope that he's he's doing some improv. Do you feel as though that your influence on him has caused him to step outside of his comfort zone? Yeah. Maybe a little. Maybe a little. Um, the Voicester pro- project um, which you know as, as far as the, the phrasing like as far as the phrasing is concerned and, and the arrangements, how did you tackle that particular? Because I don't, I would assume that nothing on that album or any of your projects with voice, uh, voices strip was spontaneous. Like it took. So how many people? Meticulous planning. There's twelve. Yeah. So f- as far as writing parts for the, like, as far as rehearsal and all that. Well, you're you're referring to vocabularies that project. I'm sorry. I said Voicester. Yes, vocabularies. Yeah, how many... I read that it was over 1,200 vocal tracks. There were a lot of vocal tracks, yeah. And everything on that project was done by the voice? Was done by voice, yes. Man. What does that, there, what does that mean? There's a project. Have you have you ever heard of vocal sampling from Cuba? Yes, I have. Okay, yeah, like... It, I thought vocal sampling from... It, it, they were... It was like three cousins and three brothers, almost like the Take Six story, okay. but they're in Cuba. But when they do percussion, I swear to God, it was the real thing. Like I thought, <laughs> I I made them prove to me that it was actually them. <laughs> yeah, and but this, how, as far as engineering and all that stuff, is that just you and Linda and your well, engineers? The, just, the project began. 
uh, I worked with an arranger by the name of Roger Trees, mm-hmm. and he he went through the Voicester files. He just went through everything. He listened to all the the solo, the the uh, improvisational concerts that we did, and he found certain themes and developed them. And he's responsible for all of the arrangements. I think we worked on the project for a, a good two years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he, he would record, say, the basses for for a while, and then he'd record another group, you know, the tenors and the altos and sopranos. So he did them one, one group at a time. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry, and, I was coughing. And with my parts, he would simply put the recording on a loop so that, you know, for example, he wanted a funky bass line. So he would have me sing a funky bass line for eight bars and then he'd loop it around. So I would do 28 bass lines and then he'd choose the one that he wanted to work off of. And that's pretty much how we worked. I'd just go into the studio and he'd say, I need a new melody for this line. And so I would just sing that melody or that line a multitude of times and then he would take it and work on it and expand it and develop it. And that's pretty much how we worked on it. So it was physically only 12 people? There's probably more than 12, but I'm not sure how many. Voices is 12. Voices is 12, Voices but this project... Group, the performing group is 12 people. Has the, the vocabulary project ever done anything live uh well a couple pieces say la deo no was like a garden or right like when we went to poland that time there was that group that did some stuff from like two pieces from it from gdanks gdanks with me I've forgotten the question. No, it was just one it of the happens no, here all the time. Does it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it really does. It really does. No, I just I'm trying to imagine you guys recreating any of those songs. Yeah, it's to that we, level. Yeah, there is a group. I think it's called. They're called. Are they called Sticks? S T Y X. Oh yeah. Oh, the yeah. yeah, the rock group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Is that is that? No, who? you're thinking of Pentatonics. No, I'm not thinking of Pentatonics. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, the German group that was in Poland with us. Right. I think they were called Sticks, but not the Rock Another Sticks? It's not the Rock yeah. It was another Sticks. Yeah. So. Uh-huh. Jesus. Okay. I forgot about Pentatonics, though. Really <laughs> <laughs> I actually heard um, over the holidays, Pentatonics, I guess they came out with a Christmas album or something like that. That's the only and, time I hear from them. <laughs> right. And I was in Bloomingdale's. And, you know, they're playing only Christmas music and all of a sudden I hear the Don't Worry Be Happy theme and it's not him, you know. And so I recorded a video of myself being like, oh, goodness, what is this? And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden it, goes, it goes from, uh, thank thank God I was recording myself because it goes from the Don't Worry Be Happy theme into Sleigh Bells Ring. Uh, and I was like, wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> what? My, the shock on my face was, um, uh, I'm still shocked. I don't know how to deal with it. 
All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You did a, a, a song, I, I, it was a couple years ago, it was a minute ago, for a Pixar short. Um, Nick-Nack. Nick-Nack. Is that out? Can I, but I love that song. <laughs> Is it out? Is it, I mean, like, can you purchase it? Or can you email it to me? <laughs> <laughs> I think either way. They, they spoke of it as in his rough vocal was actually wound up being the, that the was final the one they vocal. Used. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that was, I forget which one was it. That was in. Came uh, before Finding Nemo. It was Finding Nemo, yeah, because my son Your favorite. loved that. Oh, that should be around there. Well, it should be but around. But it, it actually, it, you had actually done it in the 80s, though, right? The original yes, one. Right. And then they brought it back. They did. For Finding Nemo. Which oh, you're supplying me with a fresh cup of tea. Yeah. Thank you, Cole. <laughs> is that Cole. for me or is that for you? It's for you. I'm not even going to touch it. Oh, for thank you. you so yes, much. No problem. We, thank you. Is there a spoon for him? This? Yes. Yeah, got okay. We actually saw that together, that we saw Finding Nemo together, just we the did. two of us. And um, Nick Knack came on, which apparently, side note, in the original one, the mermaid's boobs are a lot bigger. Ah. And so they, <laughs> they shrunk them. For the for the for Disney the movie, yeah, <laughs> be a little more a little more PG. And at the end of Knickknack, you know, in big letters it says Bobby McFerrin. And my dad just leaned over and he was like, "I wonder what he's doing right now." <laughs> That's so dope. That's dope. No, I love that song. I love I, I, immediately when I seeing it, seeing it, and then here I was like, "That's Bobby. It's got to be him." And then when it came out, at the end I was like, "Fuck that." Really yeah. That's so dope, man. That's cool. You had a really good. Uh, Finding Nemo experience. I mean, 
Because I had a That's very, what say, what's I had your a, I had a very horrible <laughs> Finding Nemo experience. How is that possible? That movie is so. <laughs> long story, long story. Was it, Another round. Was it a date that fell, went bad? Or? No, that's when Prince <laughs> fired yeah. me and played Finding Nemo instead. Wow. Oh, the DJ. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember that's, that was wow. hilarious. Like, you're so bad, I want to put this Fish. DVD on in the club. <laughs> <laughs> Finding Nemo is a great movie, though. So you know, just I wasn't big on Dory, though. Dory was kind of like I thought it was a decent follow up. I thought it was a decent follow up, but like Finding Nemo is definitely no. That's the one. Mm -hmm. Pixar kind of, but they got to get back on. They was I don't. Yeah, I don't know if I can trust their the because now everything's just getting like top tier Rotten Tomato ratings. Mm Well, with oh, the exception of cars, 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 they hate cars. and that was the one that like printed money. So they well, because like, they made you know uh, the merchandise. The, yeah, Lightning McQueen. He's but. actually to circle it back around. He's wearing a, a Monster Zinc shirt right now. Right now. Oh, yeah. underneath. If it wasn't so cold in here, we yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. From your visit at Pixar, I said strike. Um, I, w- I want to talk about the uh, the paper music project. Um, okay. First of all, did you? Were you conducting and singing at the same time, or was that just as I, far as it, on concerts? I would conduct and sing at the same time, which I really didn't like doing. Yeah, I was like, how can you do that? Because that's well, the pieces would have to be they'd have to be first off not very complicated. They'd have to be something that the orchestra could play by themselves. Um, so you would still conduct them by hand and I still con- turn the page and still sing. Your solos? Yeah, pretty much. What did you, I mean, am I just to assume that you learned the art of conducting back when you were in, about to say Juilliard at six? No, No, what happened, what happened was, as my 40th birthday was approaching, I wanted to give myself a special gift. And I, I went through a list of all kinds of ideas, and I had written down conducting on that list. And uh, so I started attending, I was living in San Francisco at the time, I started attending concerts, classical concerts, and would end up backstage and I'd drop hints, you know, I'd say, boy, it'd be great to conduct you one day. (laughs) Wait a minute, I'm sorry, because you just said that, and I'm in my 40th birthday. And the only option I was thinking of, like, are we doing Sylvia's or Red Rooster? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I never once Bobby thought, thinks like, bigger, deeper. What I, nah, for real. Yeah. Jesus. So um, I finally got a phone call from the from the orchestra inviting me to to conduct them. This, you know, this is after, of course, don't worry, be happy. So they're thinking pension fund and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Right. And so. Um, is this why you moved to Minnesota? Or is this because you were in Minnesota? No, I wasn't in Minnesota yet. Okay. But eventually I got there through conduct. You know, it was it was all about conducting. Anyway, so they invited me to conduct them. And my my 40th birthday was available. So I conducted Beethoven's 7th. On my fortieth birthday, what? that was my con- that was my conducting debut. Damn! And as far as I was concerned, that was all the conducting I was I was going to do. I mean, it was re- it's a really difficult thing to. That's what I'm to saying. Do. How did you know how to just? Well, I studied. I studied okay, so the cool. score, okay. and I had a couple of teachers. I I had some lessons with Seiji Ozawa, one with Leonard Bernstein. Oh wow! 
I ended up working on a continual basis with my conducting teacher, Gustav Meyer, who passed Whoa. about a year ago. Uh-huh. Uh, we went to the score, so I, I knew it pretty well. I conducted the piece, and then I thought I was done. But I started getting phone calls. They started calling Linda. Would, can we get him to conduct our, come to our city and conduct our orchestra? So all of a sudden I found myself with all these conducting engagements. And when I was conducting the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra in Minneapolis, um, there was a position open, and I asked for it because I wanted to, at this point, I'm serious about conducting. I want to learn the art of conducting. So I asked for the position and got it and stayed with the, stayed with the Chamber Orchestra for seven seasons. Can you explain to us exactly what, goes into conducting because it just oh, looks like it's just you waving a baton, but it's got to no, be more than it's, that. No, it's, it's about your entire body. I mean, the way you look at an orchestra can influence their playing. Uh, it's the gestures of the body. You display the music that's being played through through your your body. You inform the orchestra what you want by the motion of your hands, the the gestures of your of your body, you know, smiling at them, scowling at them, or whatever. <laughs> it, but it takes a lot of work. It's it's tedious work. At least it was for me. And after 18 years of doing it, I decided to stop. So you, that's a challenge, that was like a challenge that made you think twice about it? And Well, I, I really do love it. I love conducting Mozart, most of all. He's a very impish kind of character. Mm -hmm. He has, he tells lots of musical jokes. He's very playful and boisterous and serious and deep. I conducted a piece of his that he wrote when he was eight, and for the life of me, I can't think of the name of it. It was, it was a short symphony, it was about 50 minutes in length. But it's a piece that he wrote when he was eight years old. And when you listen to it, you wonder how can an eight-year-old have those kinds of, have this deep emotional depth of understanding of the human condition, you know, the emotions that he, that he discovered through music was pretty profound. Mm -hmm. I couldn't understand how he could write something so deep at eight, but but he was that well developed a musician, and he he burned out in, in his thirties, you know, after writing some incredible music. He's my favorite to conduct. The world of classical music is so disciplined. Do you feel as though maybe perhaps it rarely allowed uh, any sort of spontaneity? Well, you know, it surprised me. Standing in front of an orchestra, a full orchestra with eight basses. Mm -hmm. And during this time I was doing, I'd open up with a classical piece or two, and then I'd do a solo set, and then the concert, then there'd be an intermission, and then there'd be a classical piece, you know, a Beethoven piece or Bernstein or something. Something would take place in the second half. And I remember walking over to the bass section and one by one asked if 
one of them would be interested in playing a B-flat blues with me, and none of them could do it. Wow. And that blew me away, because I thought, how can you not play, how can you not give me a B-flat blues so I can, you know, improvise on top of that? I just thought every bass player could, you know, either classically trained or not, could play a B-flat, a blues in B-flat. Yeah, I think with classical musicians, they condition themselves to read on on the spot. That's why I call it paper music, because they, ah. they, they live on the page. Sarcasm and humor work in this case. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, but I love classical music. Well, you live in between worlds because you, I assume that you can read on site. I can or read. Or given but, five, ten minutes to right, recap it. Okay. Right, yes. So, it, I mean, do you, when that blew your weight, like they didn't even know the technical, the technical notes to do like the one chord and then yeah, the four chord and the five chord one. Yeah. Well, that wasn't true of all orchestras. There, there were some that, that could, you know, play blues and B flat, but lots of things shocked me about that that world. It's, it's very, very different. Everything is organized. Everything has to be discussed, even down to what are we going to wear. I, I conducted concert versions of Porgy and Bess, and I wanted the orchestra and the chorus to be as colorful as possible. I didn't want the blacks, mm-hmm. black and white suits and all that kind of stuff. You know, the choir all wearing black and white, whatever. I didn't want that. I said, wear everything. Wear African garb. Wear just be <laughs> colorful, because we're talking about Catfish Row here. We're talking about a village of people. So they didn't walk around in suits and ties. You know, they walked around in bare feet and patches on their clothes and different colors. You must have loved it. So so as soon as the chorus would come in, even before we played a note, the the audience knew that something was up, something wonderful was going to was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Just because of the way everyone looked, even the orchestra. But they'd have to have meetings about this kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean wear color? What colors? And I say many many colors. Short sleeve, long sleeve. I say, I don't care. <laughs> Jeans, slacks, doesn't matter. I don't care. You know, free. You're free. <laughs> just, just play. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Madison, what was this like for you growing up? Because you seem, it seems like he would be like the coolest dad ever. Like, well, did, did he allow you to express yourself like that as well? Yeah, we were always really encouraged to express ourselves in whatever ways. Um, they are the Animaniacs. <laughs> uh, but, More so than the Smollett's? Oh, <laughs> they're passing the Smollett's. What? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, have it, no idea what you're talking about. The Smollett's, uh, Journey Smollett, the family. Uh, we, yeah. we had them on the show, like the whole family. No, when I see, you know, the Tasmanian devil cloud yeah, 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 of yeah, uh, chaos. I just see that with the the four of them together. (laughs) The little girl from Eve's Bayou. I was trying to give him a, I'm like, "Mm, what's the list? Well, um, I mean, it was interesting. And like similar to what I had mentioned earlier about not really putting two and two together until I got to college. We were always going to shows. You know, we were always going to whether it was a solo show or a classical show. Um, You know, I just remember being little and needing to, like, sit on my mom's jacket because I wasn't big enough to see the stage (laughs) type of thing, you know? And And this was in San Francisco. This is where you you grew up. Well, we moved from San Francisco when I was just under three, and then I did, like, elementary school in Minneapolis. Okay. um, And then pretty much middle school and high school in Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, But it was another one of those things where you really take for granted that, like, I'm not thinking about the fact that, oh, all my friends aren't going to see classical shows, like, every other weekend. You know, like, that didn't, that really didn't compute. And it also didn't connect because, you know, he was gone a decent amount on the road. And my two best friends, one of them, her dad was a, like, a consultant who was on the road all the time. And the other one, her mom was a businesswoman who was on the road all the time. So I was kind of like, oh, a parent is, on, is gone. <laughs> like, just, that's just kind of the vibe, you know? And what did your, uh, did your mom, she was not a singer or anything like that? No music? Not at all? No, my mom has wonderful taste in music. She, <laughs> she has, ain't singing that. She's not, she's apparently, not singing. And apparently the world's best fried chicken. It's very, 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 yeah. Yes, yeah. yes I'll, we can attest to that. And we she's from the West Coast? That. No, she's from Illinois. 
Okay. But apparently, I mean, Dad can say this better than I can, but apparently one of the things that caught his eye when they met in 75 is that when he went to her apartment, and this is a white woman, she had a copy of Downbeat magazine in her apartment. Yes, she did. And so... That's right. I said, do you read Downbeat? But she is a different kind of artist in the sense of she is an incredible interior designer um, and has an eye for that kind of detail. And but she always says that if she could sing, she'd be a blues singer. So she had a voice. She would want to do that. But that is not what she does. Um, (laughs) But I think it's actually better that way since he is like such a virtuoso. I feel like having two musician couple. No, it's it's, it's, it's crazy. No, that ain't the way to go. You'd be a lawyer if not. (laughs) No, for real. So like Colette, have y'all collaborated yet? We are. I'm in his band, in one of his bands with him um, called Spirit You All. So we did... About two years of touring. Kin- of touring together, which was really fun. I I, got, I said I essentially got paid to travel the world and laugh and, and laugh because <laughs> we would something would happen on stage and we would get to laughing so hard so deep we couldn't even look at each other. Yeah, it was bad. It was, His sound guy, Dan Vacari. He after one show he told me he was like if something happens like you you can't look at your dad because you guys will look at each other and he'll fall out and it'll turn into a whole thing, um, but we definitely have a way of setting each other off. I actually recently found a photo um, of the two of us sitting at the piano when I'm probably like six or something and we're both making silly faces and it pretty much sums up. That shows dynamic. Yeah, That's pretty it. much. Like, what was <laughs> what was your training like? Did you were you formally trained or did you just kind of pick it up yourself? A little bit of both. Brag um, on yourself, Madison. I uh, I started taking piano lessons when I was what, like three or four yeah, or probably. something like that. Right. Um, but then when we moved to Philadelphia. I still took up lessons, but I wasn't as serious about it. And then I also took drum lessons simultaneously, and same vibe wasn't as serious, and same thing. I took recorder lessons and wasn't as serious about it. Recorder. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. I have a wooden recorder (laughs) that my dad got me that's pretty legit. Um, And then. How were you when you did that? Uh. 10 or 11 something like that um to 12 i could i could i could play pretty well i was decent i wasn't i wasn't like the squeaky because i you know they play that in school and i would always have to be put to the side because it was like you this is past or this is below your pay grade essentially (laughs) (laughs) i couldn't i mean i they never gave it to me but i guess i i probably could but i would have to like sit in the hallway while everybody else was learning something else because they were like here's a more advanced piece that you can figure out for yourself um but i always knew i wanted to be a singer um so i was like in choirs and in high school i was like in the acapella group in the choir in the madrigals like and all that stuff so i was singing every day of the week pretty much um and then we'd sing in the house not anything like formally Um, and anytime he had a show that i was at i we always would do some kind of duet together um but definitely the most formal training I got was probably at Berkeley okay. after the fact. Does Taylor then, sing as well? I know he produces, but does he? He's does he just do? dipping into the, into the singing because okay. he definitely, he steered away from doing what dad does. 
and I think as the oldest, it was kind of like, I'm trying to prove that I'm not I'm my not, dad yeah. type of thing. Um, so he's just now dipping into it. Whereas Javon and I both like were active in choirs and stuff, but Javon also always wanted to be an actor. Oh, uh, okay. So okay. I no, was the only where did you go to high there. school? Man, his record was I cool. went to Germantown Friends School. Oh, all right. Javon went to Kappa. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Wait, why Philadelphia? Was it just like coming to well, America like, eh, eh, oh, Philly? <laughs> no, it's the winters, man. It was uh, the winter. Yeah. Minnesota was pretty bad, I can imagine. Oh, and you chose when, Philadelphia. Right? <laughs> well, it's better than Minnesota. I was invited by the Philadelphia Orchestra to conduct them in April. Ah, and so one, okay. so I'm sitting with my sound man, Dan, in an outdoor cafe with the trees blooming and everything. And... And I called up my wife and I said, maybe we should think about, because we were thinking about moving, but we didn't know where. I said, well, let's take a look at Philadelphia. So we there were also black people. And there were also <laughs> a lot of black people. No, no, no Prince runnings in Minnesota, nothing? Oh. No. No trips to Paisley Park? No. Oh, yeah, we went to Paisley Park. Sure. Oh, okay. Yeah. Have you ever played with him or done one of his no, jam sessions? No, but he's come to some, a couple, I think, a show or two of mine. Oh, okay. Didn't okay. you see him in a club once or something like that? Saw him in a club. We met and talked for a little bit. I I did a show in L.A. He, he They cleared out the balcony so that he could sit in the balcony alone so he could watch me in peace. <laughs> and that was, he was a very, I wish I had gotten to know him. He was a very quiet, he had a very quiet voice. He was very small. Mm-hmm. But he had such a presence about him. You know, and it would have been great to have sat down with him as as we're as we are and just talk about music and talk about our lives and stuff. So in, in finding your your voice, especially for your projects, like how how much uh, not nerve or how did you deal with any reservations you had with sharing your music with your family? Uh, let alone the world, but just. Um, well, I thankfully I got. I used to be really nervous when I would sing, especially in high school. Um, but then when I was in college, I was in a band called Cosmodrome, and we played a lot. And you that, went to Berkeley. I did go to Berkeley. What was that like? Because that's a very doggy dog world. Of... Um, oh no! Wait, mm-hmm. her eyes are closed, and she's thinking. Wait a minute. A bad, uh, okay, Berkeley. <laughs> Berkeley. I feel like Berkeley. right now. Berkeley is a place where I I think I had a very interesting experience being my father's daughter that I was slightly unprepared for just because you know you go to college and you want to kind of be anonymous and figure out your own stuff mm-hmm. and even so though you got I, outed like the first year I I was outed before I even got there. Uh, Who outed you? Apparently, there were people who were talking. Administration. Yeah, administration Mm -hmm. had been like telling people that Mm -hmm. I was going to be there. Uh, Um, Proud. And so I. That does a person a disservice, though. Right. And so it was this it was this thing where like, you know, obviously there's a little bit of, you know, it's cool. I'm popular type of thing. But then it was also this thing of like you get a CD, yo daddy. (laughs) (laughs) Like that kind of thing. But also, you know, like people introducing themselves and the first thing they would ask me is like how's your dad doing and i'm like you don't want to know know like right exactly and so it really it ended up giving me a lot of 
um, hesitation towards getting to know certain people because you don't know what their motivation is. Yeah, I don't know what their motivation is. And at the same time, it's like, like I'd mentioned, it's like I hadn't really listened to him as a musician until I got there. So it's like people are freaking out. Out because they've been studying him all his all their right, life. Right, right. Yeah. They're freaking out, yeah. and I'm like, "Yo, this is just my dad, and like, he's a really wonderful father, and like, that's cool that you really admire him." But like, I'm still trying to figure out my stuff. People would automatically assume that I was like a really good scatter, and it's like, no, like that's not what I do. Um, Damn, did you ever meet? Did Layla you ever like, bring your daddy uh, home from work day? Like, that's, well, he, <laughs> that's the thing is, he helped me move into my college dorm room, you know. And so then people are like, "Oh my god, Bob McFerrin is like." In like, 150. Like, like, yeah, what's that's, him, that's him with the Tupperware. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, do you know your story sounds similar to Lay- Layla Hathaway in that way? That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, her dad wasn't near to set up. I was like, you didn't have to finish that sentence. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I'm awkward. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love you, Layla. Like, oh, God. Like, I, actually, I actually DM'd her on Instagram one time because I was like, I'm happy to see like fellow daughters mentor, of yeah. you know gods. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> daughters of gods. Yeah. <laughs> did she hit you? Did she hit you back? Yeah, she did. Um, we follow each other. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I had I was able to like do the Cosmodrome thing, and then I still that knew. was how I've discovered you actually. I didn't. Well, because that's I when I was still doing my music. You were blog, doing your music blog, and I. And Amir actually was like, "Oh, if you write about foreign exchange, Fonte will probably like call you back." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I saw it, and I was like, "And the thing was, though, Wait, like, did you ever get that album 100? I did. She did. She the did. 100th okay. album was, uh, was... Tim Pimpa Butterfly." Was number one hundred. Because you could, know what, I knew all ninety nine. I didn't know what your hundredth record was. <laughs> yeah, because the thing was, I didn't even know. I didn't find out who you were until afterwards. Like I was just reading your blog. Like you did, I joined. I was like, okay, well, let me see what else she does. So then I was just following your blog. It wasn't until later on that I, that I realized that oh, that's Madison McFerrin. I was like. Oh, she's Bobby's daughter. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, some people, it takes a while for them to put the connection together. I don't know if it's because I'm light-skinned or what, but it's like some people. Are well, like, no, I saw it was then, like, because you would put up pictures, like, on Instagram and with your, of your mom, and you and your mom have, like, the exact Twins. same Twins. Yeah. Dude, yeah. it's, like, for real. It's Wait, weird. so can I ask a question? Because the first time I met Madison was with you, Amir, and she was already singing live on stage. She was about to sing for Roots Picnic and sing some of the parts. So Damn, that's right. I forgot. We did work together. Yeah. So I forget. I'm what not- made you go, Madison, come over here Sing, come to the roost picnic and how did that work? Well, because that was background she for sings? Nayla. Okay, okay, so that's what I was trying to yeah. put together. Okay, uh-huh. I know she sings a lot of singers. You know, you from Philly. Um, there's no method to my math. You come over here real quick. <laughs> yeah, and that's how it was. You you asked me like a week before it happened or something like that. It was like very. I prepare very late, and but I realized cool. I like, oh, that. someone's gonna have to sing these Dela songs, and it won't be me. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that was that was. And really I definitely cool. like. It took me forever to meet you. I. Yeah. So and then you I ended up purposely hid from him forever. So yeah. you was you, you said that real fast. You were singing backgrounds for Daylight, but I'm gonna just yeah. That just well, happened. just well, just at the Roots picnic, and then another time on at, Fallon. Like, okay. Oh, on Fallon, and then there was like a a Super Bowl Budweiser party. That's thing. right. Yeah, um, we did a lot of shows with yeah. Daylight. Yeah. Um, but that was before I was even doing solo stuff. Um, I just started doing solo stuff about two years ago. So that was, but I had thankfully had enough practice under my belt to, and had played music for my family and my friends to be able to be like, okay, what let me do this. What was that like? Like playing music for your family? I mean. Like the solo stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was really, 
I mean, I was this was the first time that I was releasing solo music, and I was really happy with what I had come out with. And the fact that it was acapella stuff actually made me a little more comfortable, which I think some people probably would assume that it, I would be less comfortable okay. playing it for my dad. Um, but it for me, it was more like, oh, I have this amazing resource to be like, what do you think of this music that is completely derivative of you? <laughs> and you have been around the block a few times. And even... Like, I did the first one by myself using his studio after he'd go to sleep. I'd, like, sneak. <laughs> no, I wouldn't sneak. Don't I touch my studio. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't sneaking. He knew I was doing it, but I was, like, he goes to bed at nine, and so I'd be in there from, like, 10 to 4. And um, so then the second time around, I was much oh, more. Oh, time out. You wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning? No, I get up between 5.30 and 6. But I had to go to bed. Oh, you're serious. <laughs> oh, it's school. I forgot. I forgot. Um, well, no, I wasn't in school anymore. It's just like, I like sleep. Right. Huh. Um, Change you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> seriously. What's that? I don't know. Um, but then the second time around, I was much more, with Finding Foundations Volume 2, I was even that much more intentional with having him be a part of the process and just while I was making it be like, what do you think of this? What are your arrangement notes? Like, do you think I should take something out? Do you think I should put something in? Um, and there were definitely some key parts. Is to- it hard to be honest or not? Is it hard to be honest? Because the one thing in life I can't do is give a uh, critique. I'd rather end a friendship. <laughs> You've never given Don critique? No. I'm just saying in a family sense, like never. she's your sister. Okay. I don't critique nobody. I hate doing vocals. That's right. You said that. Like, I just, I, I. Ooh. So you're saying you don't critique in terms of, like, while you're recording or, like, after a record is done? Just period. Like, if, like, some, like if someone comes to like, the whole idea of, like, give me your honest opinion. Like, Madison, if I discover your music, yeah. it's because I actually like you. Got you. Okay. And I dig you. But, you know. But so if somebody's like, give me your honest opinion on this, you don't. you just like, nah. Mm-mm. I found that out very early because I asked him an opinion about something and he was like, I don't do that. And I was like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah. I love it. I mean, you know. I, yeah. I mean, this was also like six, seven years ago. Questlove does not do emotions well. Right. <laughs> ain't yeah. nothing. Sorry. Is this the same? So what's next uh, around the bin for you? Um, I have produced music in the works. Okay. Um, and so doing with a lot tracks of, and with, right, yeah. Okay. But that was stuff. See, this is the thing. I wrote this produced stuff before I wrote the acapella stuff, but I, similar to my dad, had a vision of me being on stage by myself, and oh. so but I can't play all these other instruments. And I don't, even though I can play the piano, I don't feel super confident playing and singing at the same time, even though that's how I wrote the songs that are going to be produced. And so I was like, oh, snap, I need something else if I'm going to do these solo shows. And so I wrote some acapella tunes with my loop pedal, and I was like, oh, these are pretty cool. I'll like record these and then just put these out. Um, all those loops are pr- programmed inside your uh, loop pedal? Uh, when I do it live, but when I record them, I record each track individually. Each yep. track is doubled. Not for nothing. Right. I don't want to throw no shade at nobody else, but watching Madison on stage is like watching what Erica tr- trying to do with her machine on stage, but then you kind of just execute it in a... Erica's using the machine? She's, she's sometimes she uses a machine that, that on stage, but you execute oh, okay. it like it's the yeah, way it's supposed to be. I'm not trying to glass burn her. I'm not, but... 
It's Erica, put that machine down, please. Yeah, <laughs> that was your compliment, Madison. Leave but I just that didn't know how to not. Two yards. That's a chick that like really yeah, doing it. Yeah. That was actually the first time I saw somebody use a loop pedal. Was at Roots Picnic when Tune Yards two played. Yards, yeah. that like, was like, this, like the second, seven, yeah, like the second Roots Picnic or something. Well, like that. I was asking because when Kirk used to do that on his guitar solos, he would lose the information at the end, turn it off. I was like, well, damn, what's the sense in looping if you can't? keep you know in a hard mm. drive or whatever but i was asking like in your pedal you you can keep you you can save it okay so i okay. save stuff but and you can like technically save it and then just put it into the computer and have that be that but uh, um i much prefer you can't get like doubles and panning yeah, and all yeah. of the like make it sound i'm trying cool. to get it rich and full <laughs> it's phenomenal <laughs> to watch oh, it's dope you. yeah but yeah so that the, the acapella thing happened totally by accident so it's just like and people are really into that. So I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll do that. Let's it also it. is very easy for me to travel. <laughs> you know, it's like Let's I have talk this, about it. I I have no this one pedal that I put in a backpack and then I'm off to the race. I hope you don't lose that bag or the well, pedal. Well, no, it stays on my back, you know. And even if I do lose it, it's like I, all of my tracks, I perform them live. So. If I lose it, then like that sucks, but like it doesn't. So you just don't have a background. I just need to go to a guitar center and like buy a pedal (laughs) real quick. (laughs) Wait, you lost a pedal before? I have not lost a pedal. But yeah, that's plastic. It's not, yeah, but. (laughs) Ain't no wood, yeah, the floor. But I'm just saying that like it's not, even though there are ideas in there that I would love to have, I'm not so attached to them that. If I were to lose it, I'd be like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's one there's one idea in there that I composed that I don't know how to remake it. And I even played it for my dad. And he was like, whoa. But I still, to this day, I'm like, there are too many lines and parts where I'm like, I don't know how to reconstruct it. And I really want to. So that'd probably be the only one that I would be sad about. Are you and Taylor? Uh, do y'all do any work together? Because I really like this album. It really, right? really I was supposed like to be on you. that album. Oh. We well, something sucks I forgot. For you. We just, I, I know. No, it really does suck <laughs> for me. But uh, but no, I, I love that record and like I like what you do. So I yeah, no, he's something. actually supposed to produce what the next produce project is. Hopefully, yes. he's got to finish his album first. Nice. We have one song that is finished, um, and it's actually a song. That's on Finding Foundations Volume One that I had written for the first produced project, and then he he produced it, and I'm really excited about it. Um, but it's funny we used to live in the same building and like kept being like we need to make music, we need to make music, and then like it didn't happen, and now he lives in L.A. and it's like so when are we making music though. <laughs> but he makes he I mean granted I'm so biased, but like he produces the kind of music that like I hear in my head. You know, which I'm sure that comes from we have the same upbringing. But whenever I think about I would love to. Yeah, I would love to get into production at some point in time. But like until that point, like he produces the kind of music that I would know. Right. So DNA, DNA. You know, what's really interesting is. Taylor would come to me sometimes and say, Dad, you got to hear this. You got to hear this. And he'd play it for me. And I go, man, this was my favorite Favorite piece, you know, when I was your age, you know, he played something else for me. And I said, Dad, he'd say, Dad, you got to hear this. This is really great. And I say, Man, I love that piece. I already knew that piece. You know, it must be DNA thing because I would be constantly shocked that the stuff that he loved was also stuff that I loved, 
you know, before I even had kids. Right. You know what I mean? There's this George Duke album. Like, I don't know if it was his first one or his second one, but he was working with Frank Zappa at the time, uh-huh. and he produced his own album. And the opening piece on this album, I used to play over and over and over and over and over again. And so he comes to me one day and says, Dad, you got to hear this. And it's the George Duke same thing. <laughs> it's the same thing. He didn't even re- he didn't remember. Just it's in the blood. It's yeah. in the blood. It's in the blood. We're the same way with our parents. I feel like all of us have been that way. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. No, I'm playing. You know I, you are. I know. <laughs> you know you I, are. I'm <laughs> joking. I'm joking. Yeah, all right. I, so I have bef- my dad's record collection. So yeah. Me too. Yeah. Before we split, um, I just want to know about the uh, Give Me Five project. And, well, yeah, I know. It's a, it's a miniature voice stir. It, okay. It incorporates, I have one soprano, one alto, one tenor, one bass, and myself. And it's all improvised. It's just five of us. Uh, well, you guys have been singing together forever, so. I, oh, my goodness. I would hope that you know each other that well, but that's oh, we so scary to me to. To, to not know what's going to happen. Well, they, would well, they trust you know, that you're the alpha? Would they trust that, okay, we'll follow his lead and when you end the song and... Yeah, pretty much. We've been working... Some of them, like Rhiannon, who's the alpha, and she sits to my left. We met in 1980. We've been working since 1980. Okay. So that's that's what it is. It's just a small improv group, five, five voices. Well, I'm really glad and happy that uh, we finally had this conversation. Mm-hmm. It's like our first real conversation. Hey. Yes, it is. Hey. Cute. Look at we that. We did it. We did it. Life it just goals. took 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I really appreciate it. And, and I uh, applaud your artistry and it and its effect on me, even though I'm one of those uh, stick to what I know, stay in my comfort zone type people. But- yeah, thank you for your music, man. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's so many parts of my childhood. Like, I have distinct memories of like stuff you've done, and like just your voice. It like takes me back to when I was a kid. So, thank you. Simple thank pleasures you. was me and my father's joy. Like thank that's you. what we would play on the weekends and just. I won't cry. <laughs> we gonna just fade out this way, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Daddy, listen. On behalf. Of the Supreme Team. Sugar Steve, Unpaid Bill, I Boss like Bill. Get up early in the morning. Are you about to cry, Liar? I am. She already cried. Oh. Oh. Like no, I call them in the morning, I say, kids, get up. It's time for school, and they get on their clothes. I pour the cereal out, and the sugar too, yes indeed. Then I call my baby, baby, I say, Debbie, get up, get up. It's time to get yourself together. It's such a beautiful day outside. Ooh, simple pleasures are the best. Yes, they are. Ooh, I'm so happy. I'm a happy man. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Mm-hmm. I am so happy. Simple pleasures are the best. Simple pleasures are the best. <laughs> That's it. Uh, please clear that Pandora. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Thank you very much. We will see you in the next couple rounds. Quest Love Supreme. See you later. Thank you. Quest Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.